Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we are bringing you news in the world of commercial real estate uh, here in our studio in Nashville. My name is Tyler Cobble. I'm your host, and I am back. Uh, we have been gone for the past, gosh, it's probably been over a month, honestly. Uh, took a little summer break. Uh, it is fun to be back with you guys. Excited to get this show going again. It has been a crazy summer. We actually bought a hotel back in August, uh, which was a really fun uh, raise to go through. It was actually one of the larger capital raises we are, we've ever done. And uh, we're doing a little boutique hotel here in East Nashville and then across the street. Uh, today, we actually had an investor site tour at another project that we're doing uh, called US 41 that's going to have some restaurants and retail, kind of going to be a, a little sister property to that hotel. So it's been very eventful for us here this summer. Hope you guys have uh, also had an eventful summer. Hopefully, you're out there acquiring a bunch of real estate uh, as well. A um, couple of updates. We are actually going to be moving the Commercial Real Estate Investor podcast show to Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Mondays no longer work for me. Uh, we are back in full swing at the Real Estate Investors of Nashville. I'm a board member there, and I teach a class once a month at the uh, main event um, on commercial real estate. So if you're in Nashville, come on by. Uh, check it out. It's, I believe, the third, second Monday, third Monday of every month. I'd have to go back and look, but you can check it out at rentian.org. Um, but uh, yeah, so it just it was that in the board meeting uh, is on Mondays too. So a bit of a conflict uh, here, but uh, we're moving it to Wednesday and that kind of solves the problem. So there you have that. Uh, what else are we going to talk about? Oh yeah, I get lots of questions from you all about commercial real estate, whether that's on Instagram or YouTube. And of course, I'm always happy to answer them. Uh, but it'd be great if y'all could just jump into these live streams and ask away because you have if you have a question about commercial real estate, there's a great chance that somebody else has that exact same question. And I would love to just have a conversation with you here on the show. That's exactly what this is intended to do. But let's go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So let's see here. Quite a bit of news coming out of Nashville uh, this summer, of course. Uh, but look at this. Tennessean market spotlight. Lebanon features history, huge fair, and hot track. This week, we focus on the zip code 37087 in Lebanon, which is the county seat of Wilson County. It's about 25 miles east of downtown Nashville. If you're new to Middle Tennessee, it's pronounced Lebanon. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You can always tell who is, uh, who's from Nashville and who's not by how they pronounce Lebanon. Um, if you're not from here, you look at that and you read it as Lebanon. Uh, there's also a, a city in, in Middle Tennessee called Mount Juliet. And if you're not from here, it gets pronounced Mount Juliet. So that's a that's a little uh, snippet there from how natives can kind of tell who is from here and who is not. Lebanon's a very interesting uh, town. It was growing really fast, uh, actually, because, you know, it's it's basically 45 minutes outside of Nashville. It was growing really fast until Mount Juliet came online. Really, gosh, I'd say within the last, I mean, really this cycle uh, is when Mount Juliet started taking off. They built a whole bunch of shopping centers and stuff like that. And now Mount Juliet is this big place. It used to be kind of just a drive through. And now uh, there you have it. Let's see, uh, features of this Nashville suburb. You've got Cedars of Lebanon State Park, museums such as Fiddler's Grove and Wilson County Veterans Museum, the Nashville Super Speedway, which is always a super popular uh, event to go to, and Cumberland University, which is a little uh, four-year liberal arts college. 
Lebanon's pretty cool. It's growing fast, and uh, it's just a beautiful part of, of Middle Tennessee, really. Let's see how they're doing. Time on market drops. At this time in 2020, homes were on the market an average of 40 days. This year to date, homes were on the market for an average of 28 days. Current inventory is 133 homes. Obviously, Lebanon's not huge, so 133 homes is, is not many, but that's a, that's a decent amount. Um, honestly, that's not many for anything. I mean, that's the, that's the problem with... Uh, with our real estate market right now, that's a it's a good and a bad thing, right? I mean, everybody talks about everybody that's not in real estate is always like, "Oh my gosh, you're in real estate, you must be crushing it right now." And all of my friends that are in real estate are like, "Man, it was so much easier seven years ago." I don't want to hear it <laughs> because uh, you know now you're having to deal with uh, one. Everybody's just competing for listings. You don't want to take on any buyers because you're one of thirty offers. Uh, it actually becomes really really tough to work in real estate. Prices are rising. Uh, looks like the median sales price of a home in 37087 was three hundred and two thousand dollars in 2020, and so far this year it's three hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. That's a huge. I mean, that's ten percent. That's a pretty big jump year over year for Lebanon. Uh, looks like closings are up as well. This time last year they had seven hundred thirty homes closed, and this year they're at seven seventy-three. So good little jump. COVID-19 update, Tennessee outbreak uh, among world's worst. This is from the Nashville Post. Uh, I actually read, too, earlier today. This was as of last week. Earlier today, I think we got surpassed. So Tennessee is no longer the absolute worst in the world in terms of COVID-19 outbreak. I think we're like fifth, which is a pretty big bump. Um, But that's a lot. Look at that. I mean, Nashville, um, interesting to see. I wonder why that's going on. Tennessee Department of Health has now reported a total of 1 million cases of over a million. It's a million 64, but I'm not going to read all of that. Cases of COVID-19 across the state up 3,200 cases on Thursday from 8,652 new test results, which is a 25% positivity rate. Hey, at least it's staying positive. All right, bad joke. Um, Of the total number of cases, 13,500 people have died with 36 deaths reported in the last 24 hours. The number of active cases in Tennessee has increased 47% in the past two weeks with state health officials reporting that 78,500 individuals are currently infected with the coronavirus. The number of patients hospitalized within the state has increased 37.5% in two weeks and uh, gosh, in terms of capacity, the state reports 10% of inpatient beds and 6% of ICU beds remain available. Nearly 62% of the state's ventilator supply is still available. That's good. I mean, at least we're not getting close on that. Um, you know, look, uh, the, the, it's interesting to see COVID coming back from a lot of the data that I have been reading um, You know, from the CDC. It looks like a lot of the people that are getting um, – a lot of the people that are catching it now are unvaccinated. And, you know, obviously this is, we're not going to talk about whether you should or should not get vaccinated, but the data doesn't seem to lie to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's – look, I, I chose to get vaccinated. I was putting it off for the longest time because I didn't really care. I, I was I – was, I got ex- – I'm in real estate, right? Like everybody in real estate has been exposed multiple times. It just – it happens because you're, you're still working. And uh, so I figured, well, I mean, if I was going to have it, uh, I would have had it already. And, and every time I got exposed, I tested, ne- I was the only one that ever tested negative. And just after watching the Delta variant, I decided to get it. It's just to me, whatever, it's not worth messing around. It was clear, like based on the data, looked like it was working. 
Um, it'll be interesting to see how that affects the real estate market, though, because, you know, Nashville um, fared very well, uh, all things considered, uh, throughout through the first round of the pandemic. Did really well. In fact, we had a bunch of restaurants open up. Um, too specifically, I mean, look, Eastside Bon Me opened up in the middle of the pandemic and absolutely crushed it. They beat their pre-COVID expectations, which <laughs> you can't you can't ask for a lot more than that, right? Like that's pretty amazing. Cool. Let's move on to this next article from the Nashville Post: Mixed-use building to interact with downtown alleys. Third Avenue project will offer residential and retail space. From my boy, William Williams. As fi- a, oh, at a 15-story mixed-use building is planned for a downtown site currently home to a parking garage and that will, if it materializes, interact with both Banker's Alley and Printer's Alley. This is huge. I know exactly which parking garage you're talking about. Printer's Alley is an amazing little find in downtown Nashville. I'm sure if you've ever visited Nashville or you live there, you know what it is. Um, but if you go downtown, you de- you definitely need to go to Printer's Alley. Uh, there's a bunch of cool, like Skull's Rainbow Room is one of the coolest bars downtown, you know, honestly. Um, and it's and it's in Printer's Alley. And uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out, but Printer's Alley is from uh, all of the print shops that actually used to be down there. So it's really cool. It's got this kind of historic story to it, but now it's all these bars and um, Airbnbs. It's, it's pretty neat. So the building would include residential, retail, and structured parking spaces and would rise at 217 3rd Avenue North, requiring the demolition of the existing garage. That's going to be expensive. That is a big garage. Um, Let's see here. This is sitting also right behind the Noel Hotel, the Bobby Hotel. It's a great area. Let's see. The building has been designed at its modest height to provide proper context to the older structures in the immediate south. Uh, I always appreciate that. It's weird to see these like giant glass towers just overshadowing beautiful historic buildings. I feel like it takes away from really character in a neighborhood. So good to see they're doing that. Tallest portion of the structure is designed to rise 180 feet, uh, which is shorter than the Hotel Indigo. Uh, which sits on an adjacent site, which is 200 feet. So that's great. Looks like a Nashville-based uh, group led by Gabe Colty, or Coltia, um, who's a former part owner of downtown's UBS Tower, which was if, – if he was uh, involved in the repositioning of the UBS Tower, that was a great deal. Um, or she. Uh, is seeking Metro Planning Department's permission for a height modification to the department's downtown col- code – Colty's uh, development and real estate investment company Rubicon would oversee the project. Let's see. Owners have enlisted STG Design. They're a pretty big group out of Austin. And David Johnston, uh, with the, who's the principal of the company, will be overseeing the effort. Let's see. Metro Planning Commission is going to have to meet for a vote on the height modification to the city's existing downtown code just because, I mean, whenever you do anything like that, you probably have to go before the board. Uh yeah, let's see. The investors paid $13.4 million in December of 2017 for the garage, uh, which uh, sits on almost half an acre. Pretty cool. Um, I'm actually not familiar with Banker's Alley. It's noteworthy for having seen the opening since 2016. Okay, so Banker's Alley runs uh, perpendicular to Printer's Alley. That makes sense. So it's right where, so like Skull's Rainbow Room is right at the intersection of Printer's Alley and Banker's Alley. 
from from basically Skull's Rainbow Room, you could take Banker's Alley to uh, Black Rabbit, which is another pretty cool bar. Awesome. All right, well, let's move on to Market Watch. What are we diving into today? Well, going to be another city out of the Northwest. We're going into Seattle. This is in Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends in Real Estate. Let's see how Seattle is doing. Um, Seattle is considered a new boomtown uh, up there with Charlotte, Denver, Dallas, Nashville, Portland. And uh, looks like it attracts more than its fair share of smart young workers. That's, you know, I mean, that makes sense. Pretty massive. It's a cool little city. Uh, I played a, I used to play lacrosse back in high school. We actually went out there uh, my freshman year for a lacrosse tournament, and it was so cool. I mean, I'd never been up to the Pacific Northwest, and it was an amazing experience. And I kid you not, in one lacrosse game, it snowed, sleeted, rained, and then got sunny. In one game. The game's like an hour and a half long. So Seattle does have some very interesting weather. All right, let's see here. How do they look on – why is this not pulling up? Oh, there they are. Interesting. Okay, so Seattle is, in terms of home-building prospects, number 37 on the list. So they're not – you know, they're above average uh, in terms of everything that's on the list. Where are they in terms of overall development prospects? I don't know why this isn't populating. They're number 34. Okay, so I would say that Seattle's probably a middle-of-the-road market, right? I mean, they're not absolutely crushing it, but they're, you know, a pretty good market to be investing in right now. Let's see. Uh, just so you know, so Seattle is considered a magnet city, um, which is or, or the major group is the magnets. And it's in the 18-hour cities, which obviously Nashville is in. An 18-hour city is a city that not quite a 24-hour city, but close, right? You can also throw in Austin, Charlotte, Denver, Minneapolis, Portland, Oregon, Raleigh-Durham, um, all of those kinds of cities in there with it. Cool. Let's see why Seattle is doing well or not doing well. This is an article from the Seattle Times. Seattle's housing frenzy cools a bit, but it's still incredible. See what's happening near you. So as Craig Anderson started shopping for a new home earlier this year, what he saw was just incredible. Homes sold for $100,000 to $150,000 over the list price. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like Nashville. He lost out on two houses offering a mere fifty dollars to $60,000 over the list price. I mean, come on, man. He should have known better than that. <laughs> That's crazy. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. I mean, could you imagine? I know a lot of y'all are in residential real estate, and I don't know how y'all are dealing with that right now. Uh, please jump in one of these one day. I would love to have a conversation with somebody and just hear what is going on in the residential world because things are crazy in commercial, uh, but it is nowhere near uh, what it is in residential. Let's see. Looks like uh, he wasn't willing to play that game, took a break, and that pause paid off. When he tried again in July, he said he quickly secured a mid-century modern home in South Everett for just $50 over its $599,950 asking price. I feel like in this market, I got a good deal. Seattle area housing market has officially entered a summer slowdown. Well, you know, we're entering into the fall, so of course, buyers feel like they can be a little more choosy at this point. Um, shift is typical this time of year, though the pandemic upended the market's usual timelines last summer. Even with some seasonal relief, home ownership continues to soar out of reach for plenty of people. 
Median home prices are up about 22% in Southeast King County, 24% in North King County, and 32% on the east side compared to last year. That's wild. That's a massive, massive jump in home values. Wow. In Seattle, the median single-family home price of $896,500 is up about 11% from last July, but down from a $919,000 peak in May. How is the median home price in Seattle $900,000? That's wild. I mean, that's like two and a half times the median price of Nashville. And everybody here is in Nashville is thinking they're not getting a good deal. I mean, come on. If, if your median household is 900000 and you're able to buy one for six hundred, that's a pretty good deal. That's two-thirds the median, uh, median household. That's so crazy, though. Countywide, the median single-family home in King County last month sold for eight seventy-one, up about twenty percent from last July. That's just that's crazy to me. I guess if you want to build a home, go to go to Seattle. Uh, monthly median sales prices for single-family homes in the Central Puget Sound region. Median is the price at which half. Okay, we all know what median is. Let's see. Gosh, these charts are pretty crazy. I mean, seven hundred twenty-seven thousand five hundred July, uh, January. Uh, no, July of last year, and July of this year, eight seventy-one. Yeah, up ninety thousand dollars. In one 24-hour period this week, almost 200 new homes hit the market in King, Pierce, and Snohomish counties, uh, and twice as many went up, went pending in the same time period. So 200 new homes hit the market, 400 homes went under contract. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, the. I mean, look, if you're a home builder, that is the market you want to be in. That's amazing. For much of the coronavirus pandemic, telecommuting white-collar workers have driven bidding wars and price hikes in areas farther out from Seattle. Uh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I get the whole work-from-home thing, like let's go buy a nicer home because we're going to be here more often, but I, I just I don't know how you could just stay at home all day. I mean, you just go on a walk and then come back and sit back at your computer. I mean – I couldn't imagine not seeing people all day. Um, that's just wild to me. Cool. Okay. So housing market is absolutely on fire. Um, okay. This is this next article is from Globestreet.com, and I'm totally going to butcher this pronunciation as well, but the Moog Harebi group expands to Seattle. We're just going to call them the M group. Uh, brokers Robert Parmar and Ryan Kidwell joined the firm to lead the expansion in the Pacific Northwest. Brokerage firm, the M Group, has opened an office in Seattle. Uh, let's see. The brokerage firm topped the firm's expansion list because of the recent economic growth. Seattle was one of the most advanced and highly diversified economies in the U.S., from a labor perspective, tech has provided strong growth throughout the region with companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft dominating the employment scene. I mean, obviously, look, that, that is why your median household is $900,000. Uh, as the region continues to grow away from industrial employers like Boeing that still remain major employers, said Alex Ma Magarebi, uh, the firm's founder. 
The pandemic has only helped fuel demand for jobs and for growth. Due to this unprecedented demand for jobs in the information and tech sector, we are seeing a dramatic increase in overall rent growth, as well as a rapid cap rate compression, which is exacerbated by supply shortages due to Seattle's unique geography on the sound. I mean, that's true. You look at Seattle, it's it's somewhat similar to Chattanooga. Um, it's, it's, got, it's limited because of all the hills and kind of similar to Nashville. I mean, you're, you're limited by the geography that you've got going on around you. You know, Texas doesn't know what that's like because they've just got flat land everywhere. So they just keep building wherever they want. Uh, it's really interesting to see how cities develop when they are geographically constrained. Looks like the new office will help the firm better serve its existing client as well as uh, form relationships with local owners. Goals are to perform. Goals are to grow the platform in a sound and thoughtful way. Cool. Due to the meteoric rise of Seattle's economy and geography, there is a significant amount of inventory that needs some tender loving care and provides significant upside. It's always cool when you see uh, these boutique brokerages start to open up in new markets because there's always a gap, right? Like they found their niche in another market. So why wouldn't that niche work uh, in, a, in a similar market? I mean, we're doing the same thing, right? So I own a brokerage called the Cobble Group and a, and a commercial property management company called Parasol. And we're starting to buy property in Chattanooga, which is two hours away. So of course, we're going to be opening up branches of our properties out there. One thing that we have done really well that we feel, feel will help us fit into the market uh, from day one is our marketing. Right? We're just better at marketing than most other companies. Uh, that's just that's what we always decided to dedicate ourselves on. And it works. It works really well. All right, let's move on to the future of CRE. What is going on in the world? Oh, cool. All right, so this one is coming at us from CNBC. Lumber executive says drop in prices has reignited demand for building projects. I don't know if y'all were watching lumber prices. Maybe you weren't if you were not uh, building anything. But it was wild to see how much lumber went up and how that truly did impact so many jobs. I mean, we couldn't, we didn't have to stop any of our work, but there were a lot of developments that got stopped because costs were so high. It just didn't make any sense. We're trying to build a 2,800 square foot, two-story building in East Nashville right now that's ground floor commercial, second floor residential. And I can't get any quotes that make any sense. Based on my sales estimates, we've got to sell it between $900 and $950,000, which is like $340 a foot. And our total project cost, including the land, came in at $905,000. It's like, that's not going to work. It's just, it's crazy. So we're just going to have to put that project off for a while, sit around and wait for prices to go up, I guess. Sherwood Lumber executive Kyle Little told CNBC that the lumber industry is now rebuilding its inventory to match renewed product demand. Demand is most notably in the commercial segment and into the multifamily unit segment. Little said lumber prices make absolute sense after the industry's recovery from panic, uh, pandemic-driven sell-offs, uh, fortunately not panic-driven, uh, in the first and second quarters of 2020. Very flattering screenshot there. Uh, looks like the recent slide in lumber prices has rekindled demand after a massive run-up earlier this year. Yeah, I mean, it was wild. I think, it was, I think at one point it got up to 300% increase. 
So that's pretty cool. Lumber hit a low of $480.40 per thousand board feet, the lowest level since July 8, 2020, when lumber traded as low as $465 per thousand board feet. Lumber prices are on track for their 13th consecutive weekly loss after falling more than 9%. What did it get up to, though? Oh, here we go. Earlier this year in May, lumber prices hit an all-time high of $1,670.50 per thousand board feet. I mean, that's three times the price. Crazy. Current lumber prices make absolute sense. Uh, in June, lumber traded above $1,100 per 1,000 board feet. Looks like we're going through a stage of equilibrium. And what we're finding is the support level that follows the bottom end of that continual trend pre-COVID is very, very bullish. A little sad. It's also one that would be making a lot of us in the lumber world feel much more comfortable going and rebuilding inventory here for the second half of this year with the projected demand that we are now seeing. Uh, it, it, was, it was wild to watch. Glad to see that that's finally starting to come back down. We needed it. All right, this next one is from Biz Now. A lot of people on the streets. The eviction crisis has begun. So the eviction moratorium, I guess, got, well, I'm sure it'll say here um, in the article, but it got um, lifted back in August or sometime in September. Yeah, I believe it was August. So let's see here. Eviction cases are moving forward all over the country, and though many states and municipalities have mandatory waiting periods, tenants with unpaid rent are already being locked out in others. A significant number of landlords had waited to even file for eviction until there was no moratorium to challenge it, accelerating new filings, multiple sources told BizNow. Look, I'm sure that there are plenty of good people out there that actually fell on hard times and struggled to pay their rent and their, you know, potentially unjustly being evicted. I mean, it's look, it's tough, right? As a landlord, you're not running a charity. You know, you're agreeing to give somebody a space in exchange for money and you've got expenses too, right? But I have anecdote after anecdote from buddies of mine that own apartment complexes that people were just taking advantage of the entire situation and just deciding not to pay rent because they didn't have to and they weren't going to get evicted. So what are you going to do as a landlord? Landlord-tenant law varies from state to state, county to county, and in terms of enforcement, judge to judge. But the threat of eviction has gone from a problem looming over the horizon to an immediate danger. I don't know if I would classify it as an immediate danger, uh, but I would say that it's here. As many as 3.5 million households are behind on their rent, and according to an analysis of U.S. Census data by Goldman Sachs, 750,000 are at immediate risk of being evicted before the year is out. I suspect we'll see a lot of renters out on the streets, said Michelle Dimsky, a staff attorney, adding that she has already seen an increase in the number of eviction cases she has been assigned in the three business days since the moratorium was lifted. Most of the reports you're getting are from cases that were filed but weren't heard, and now the hearings are going forward. I do think we are a couple weeks out from when we would really start to see massive numbers of physical evictions. Uh, CDC clarified that landlords were allowed to file for eviction during the moratorium, but uh, most of the landlords waited because what was the point? 
I mean, you were basically told we're not. You're, you can file, but you're not going to be able to evict anybody. So it's like, okay, so you're telling me I can go through and do all of this paperwork and get nothing? I'll just wait. So, of course, as soon as it gets lifted, a bunch of landlords are rushing to go evict the tenants that just never paid anything. Larger landlords were more likely to wait until now, in part because it is more efficient to serve notices in bulk without worrying about having many cases tied up at once. Corporate landlords and the third-party property managers that often represent them are also more likely to evict tenants for non-payment of rent than opt for mediation or other alternatives. It's just easier. I mean, you're going to get tied up in court forever. Why would you let someone live in your property not paying you, also arguing with them in court for months or years? Now that the apparatus for evictions has started to back up, the urgency for jurisdictions to distribute emergency rental assistance funds allocated by the federal government has reached a critical level. I mean, I I know that I'm obviously biased because I'm in Nashville and Nashville's doing really well, but why why are people not able to pay rent? I mean, every there are so many places that are struggling to hire people because nobody wants jobs. I mean, are these people just not going out and getting jobs? I, I, I'm, I'm honestly thoroughly confused because we, we represent so many restaurants and hospitality concepts. We've done you know everything from brokerage to sales deals for them. And every time I talk to them, it's like, you know, this restaurant that typically is supposed to have four cooks on their line uh, only had one last night. And, you know, they almost had to shut the restaurant down and they can't get people to show up for work. And, you know, everybody's leaving and... I don't it's I mean I get it like you could argue you know the $15 an hour thing or increasing minimum wage or whatever but if you're paying a fair wage and also still not able to get anybody to work then that says something to me so I don't know really it's it's interesting I don't know why it's happening I would like to know only five billion dollars of the 46 billion dollars in rent relief Funds authorized by Congress have been distributed at the time of the Treasury Department's most recent update in mid-August so there's $41 billion in rent relief funds. Um, even in areas like Philadelphia, which has been efficient in getting money to the tenants, the number of new applicants per week is outpacing the number of applications that get processed. As of the end of August, Philly was distributing an average of $7 million per week and has already used up about 80% of the funds it was allocated. Man, it's crazy to think about as much as the distribution of assistance has been backed up, the situation could easily worsen in the days and weeks to come. Of course, as everybody starts to move forward uh, with evictions, um, they're just going into further stories here about, um, you know, actual anecdotes of people getting evicted and stuff like that. Uh, the the links to all these articles will be in the show notes, of course, if you guys are uh, interested in going through and reading any of them. Um, any protection against eviction, even a federal one, is still subject to the whims of local judges, like those in Texas, who began ignoring the CDC moratorium as early as June. The closest thing to a sure way to keep tenants in their homes is by giving them the money to pay the rent they owe. Advocates for both landlords and tenants agreed. Yet so far, efforts to do that have fallen short. Hmm. All right, this one is from Globestreet.com. Up to 8 million apartment Wait, eight, up to 8M apartment new lease signings. Up to 8 million apartment... Gosh, they, they didn't really word this right. Up to 8 million new apartment lease signings expected in the next six months. 
Uh, sorry, I'm tripping over that one because it was not it was not in the right order. Uh, key factors driving desire to move include more space, 35%, and upgrading to a nicer place, 33%. With peak Delta variant cases soon to hit this month, everybody's talking about Delta variant. It'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Uh, followed by a likely retreat, apartment renters appear poised more than usual to get out and move. The internet listing service uh, apartments.com is forecasting up to 8 million new leases to be signed in the next six months as 53% of renters surveyed plan to move before spring. The survey is based on 20,000 respondents uh, who have set up online search accounts who submitted leads to apartment communities in the past two years. Uh, change in physical change in visits to physical locations as tracked by Google from April 1, 2020 to August 15, 2021 saw a 35% increase in persons going to retail and recreation, a 41% spike in using transit, and 38% increase in being at the workplace. I mean, people are just comfortable being back out. Uh, pandemic held back renters from moving for various reasons, such as financial concerns. That was a big one for most people, 57%. No available apartments that fit their needs, 46%. So, I mean, think about that. Nobody's moving. Then you have less availability to go look at stuff. Mental health worries was 37%. That's not surprising, considering how just detrimental it was. Um, let's see, 44% of renters now say the country opening up and increasing vaccination numbers are factors impacting their likelihood to move in the next year. Looking for a new place. Turnover is expected to rise as 59% said they intend to live somewhere else entirely. Huh. That's pretty interesting. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, if you've been locked up in one place for a whole year, it's probably – you're probably a little tired of it. Um, up to one-third of new renters – up to one-third of renters said they wanted to move to a new state. Wow. No more waiting around. Renter decisions are happening more quickly. The average renter ta uh, today takes only 31 days to find a new apartment, down from 46 days pre-COVID and 38 days in uh, Q2 of this year. Looks like all the robust virtual to, to, uh, tools. Uh, and we use a lot of these, actually, on all of our listings. They, they work. They just work really well. We were doing this before the pandemic. 3D tours, HD video, high-res photos. Uh, it's amazing how much that actually helps you sell a property. I know, crazy, crazy notion. Who would have thought it? Uh, today, renters are considering fewer communities. On average, apartment seekers are considering 12 communities at the start of their search, and then they conduct more research about each one. Then 75% of renters say they will only consider, uh, seriously consider one to three of those. So, Interesting. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive on to a private equity deal dive. What is going on in the world of private equity for real estate? This is from Globestreet.com. Columbia Property Trust to be taken private by PIMCO in $3.9 billion deal. This transaction is the culmination of a comprehensive stra uh, strategic review process by Columbia's board of directors, publicly announced in the spring of this year. Columbia Property Trust has entered into a definitive agreement to be acquired by funds manager Pacific Investment Management Company, uh, or PIMCO, for $3.9 billion, including debt. PIMCO will acquire all of the outstanding shares of Columbia Common Stock for $19.30 per share, representing a premium of approximately 27% over their closing price share on Friday, March 12th. That's huge. That's a giant jump. 
This transaction is the culmination of a comprehensive strategic review process undertaken by Columbia's board of directors. And nearly 90% of potential counterparties were invited to participate, including strategic acquirers. Let's see, an office REIT, Columbia's portfolio consists of 15 properties with more than 6 million rentable square feet. <laughs> Looks like they only go for giant assets, as well as four properties under development. It also has more than 8 million square feet under management for private investors and third parties. The office asset class is in a state of flux at the moment. And from March of 2021 to September 3rd, the high barrier office sector traded down 5%. However, signs are growing that sales will improve in the second half of the year. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, look, everybody's talking about Office getting taking a hit again as Delta variant increases. But Office, I mean, depending on what you had, I mean, really it was like CBD Office. If you have an office building in the downtown core, that's what really took a hit. Neighborhood Office did just fine. My office building, everybody. I mean, I saw everybody here just about every day. 28,000 feet. We've got 16 tenants. Um, you know, probably... 30 to 40 people on site at any given time. Um, so, you know, we actually lived through it and saw what other businesses were doing, and we're not in the core. We continue to believe that high-quality office buildings in major U.S. cities offer long-term value for our clients, and Columbia has a- assembled a modernized, well-located portfolio of assets that we expect will perform well in the years ahead. Uh, transaction is expected to close uh Possibly by the end of the year, of course, Columbia's shareholders have to approve, um, and there will be some other conditions. Um, looks like Columbia's common stock will not be listed on the New York Stock Exchange anymore as part of this deal. Awesome. All right, well, let's dive into PropTech. This is from Construction Dive. Autonomous technologies can help alleviate the labor shortage. Robots, machinery, and software promise to aid with skilled labor shortage or at least, or at the very least, free up managers and others' work time so they can focus on more important tasks. That's been a massive problem during the crisis. Just tough finding skilled labor to show up to jobs. Uh, in the next three decades, as many as 2.7 million construction jobs could be automated, according to a report from the Midwest Economic Policy Institute that could result in $30 billion in reduced labor costs in 2020 dollars. Robots take on job site tasks. Most autonomous innovations are for simple but time-consuming tasks on the job site, namely image capture and laser scanning that provide imagery of a project's process. That's pretty cool. Maybe one day we'll have laser surveying from some sort of satellite and I won't have to wait six weeks to get a survey every time we put a property under contract. It's crazy. I, I mean, there's no, uh, I almost want to just like go to surveying school and figure out how to do it up myself because you cannot get anybody to show up faster. Uh, I mean, they're busy, which is good. Good for them. Boston Dynamics is continuing to market its autonomous tech to contractors. Of course, they're the ones with the, the robot dogs. Um, looks like it's spot. The robot dog patrols job sites autonomously following along pre-planned routes to take image captures. That is very dystopian and also very cool. A human may only get to this task a few times a week, but the robo dog can walk the site at any time. 
Also, the technology allows construction site managers and others to continue working on other assignments or tasks. Anything you can do to free people up from the things that they shouldn't be doing that's the least value? Absolutely. Boston-based Windover Construction created a solution with software developer RCML to implement a solution on an existing robot. The two-tracked robot is able to move around job sites to perform laser scans and make drawings of a site with precise accuracy. Both jobs that require a lot of time and effort if done by a person. And that's not cheap either. We just did one on one of our properties uh, to get an image scan, and it was not a big property. Um, and it was like $10,000. It's not That stuff's not cheap. Let's see, other tasks for robots. Automated machines filling jobs means not just supplementing the construction process, but let's talk about the physical tasks that they can do on site. Built Robotics announced last month the unveiling of 100% autonomous software for construction excavators and bulldozers. Built to outfits existing construction machinery with its software and trains managers to ensure they operate the equipment properly using GPS guidance systems. That's pretty cool. With the technology, a manager can look over multiple excavators or bulldozers at once. It's We're bringing video games into real life. I mean, you're going to be able to just operate all of this stuff from a desk. I guess, I guess that's why you buy a nicer house. You're just going to be playing video games at home for a living. Pretty cool. Um, sign me up. It's funny. I mean, who, who didn't want to be a professional gamer back when they were in high school? It's coming to life. Let's dive into reading REITs. This week, we're diving into mall REITs. Mall REITs, fears of a double dip. Um, if, uh, if you've been hiding, oh, wow, that zoomed in a lot. Uh, if you've been in a hole uh, for the last 10 years, you probably have no idea that malls are getting crushed, uh, as they should be. They, look, I mean, they, they refused to adapt and become anything else. <laughs> So cool. It's, I, I love seeing them get redeveloped uh, and renovated. It's a lot of fun to watch. And they also can become these amazing projects. It just takes a little bit of effort and, you know, some ideas. This is from SeekingAlpha.com. Glimmers of hope are beginning to emerge for the battered mall REIT sector, which has soared 50% this year on signs of stabilizing in occupancy rates and normalizing rent collection. That's actually great. That's literally the opposite of what I was just saying. Um, net operating income surged more than 40% in Q2, albeit from easy comps, driven by a recovery in rent collection to 94%. Okay, well, Simon significantly boosted its full-year outlook. Despite the rebound, full-year FFO will remain 20 to 50% below pre-pandemic levels across the sector. Okay, never mind. There we go. That's exactly what we were waiting for. Um, downward pressure on releasing rental rates suggests that it is still too soon to call the bottom. Hopes dashed, high-frequency activity data suggests that economic reopenings have stalled and even reversed in some areas amid a resurgence in COVID cases and hospitalizations across the globe. Despite seemingly reasonable valuations, risk, r- risks remain skewed to the downside. Outside of Simon, the balance of the mall sector, particularly the three recently bankrupt REITs, cannot survive a double dip. Simon, if you're not familiar with them, is the largest uh, property group, I mean, mall owner um, in the country, I believe. Maybe bigger. Let's look at, yeah, there we go. 
Looks like, oh my, I mean, their market cap is 42 billion. It looks like number two on this list is 3.2 billion. So they're the biggest by a lot. Um, okay, rent collection. Rent collection is up pretty significantly. It looks like, you know, some of these were down anywhere from 72 to 33% rent collection back in the second quarter of 2020. I mean, imagine that. Gosh, only collecting 33% of your rent? That's rough. Now they're up from anywhere from 99 to 90% rent collection. So that's great. They're, they're back, uh, back to collecting rents. Let's see here. Same-store NOI growth by property sector is growing pretty well. Um, it's up 11.5% for malls. Uh, and before the last time, like this was in Q1 of 2021, and oh, Q2 of 2021, the quarter before was down 26%. That's interesting. So, same story in Hawaii. It's all positive. I mean, you've got like Simon uh, Simon's at sixteen point six percent, with occupancy rates at ninety two percent. So, I mean, th- their occupancy remains. You know, the average uh, mall read average occupancy is ninety point six percent, which is surprisingly high. Honestly, all things considered. Right. I mean, for the most part of the pandemic, like the mall seems like the exact place you would not want to go. So for them to be still that high is is pretty impressive. Although they are certainly down looking at this chart here, looks like they dropped. um, Looks like they were almost up at 97 percent. Now they're down to 93 percent. This chart makes it look so much more dramatic than it really is. But look, I mean. Occupancy hasn't taken that big of a hit um, for malls. I mean, malls, could, there could be, of course, something there. Um, to me, the, the big play with malls is to just redevelop it. You've got to add residential on site. I, 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 I struggle with these single-use type of properties where you've just got retail. Right? Like it's a, People have to go all the way there to shop. So what happens if people aren't able to go all the way there and shop? I mean, you know, everybody's doing these live, work, play type of developments now for a reason. They're very successful. And you basically have a built-in clientele and for, for the uh, commercial businesses. And you've got built-in amenities for the residents. So it just works really well for everybody. Awesome. Let's move on to this week's wild card. And we're actually going out of the country for this one. This is from Reuters. El Salvador's world-first adoption of Bitcoin endures bumpy first day. El Salvador's historic adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender on Tuesday was beset by teething problems as an angry protest by mistrustful citizens, technological glitches, and a dip in the cryptocurrency clouded the rollout. The bold experiment got off a bumpy start when shortly after midnight, the president complained the government-backed Bitcoin app was not available on various internet platforms, including Apple and Huawei. Huawei? Uh, The president used his Twitter account to press online stores to stock the app or digital wallet known as Chivo, Chivo, 
uh, and Huawei later began making it available. But when the app proved unable to cope with user registrations, the government unplugged it in order to connect to more servers and increase capacity. Interesting. So looks like El Salvador is taking a pretty big step uh, into the new world of currency. Bitcoin has been really interesting to follow over the past year. I actually ended up investing in some of it myself. Um, but, uh, you know, to me, it's it's funny money. I mean, if it takes off, great. Uh, I, you know, if it doesn't, fine. Uh, it doesn't really matter either way, but I'll ride it regardless. Promising $30 of Bitcoin for each user. The Salvadoran president pushed for its adopt- adoption, saying it will help the country's citizens save $400 million a year on commissions for remittances while giving access to financial services to people with no bank account. We must break the paradigms of the past. Interesting. Um, he seems like a very progressive president, right? I mean, to be in, in South America and pushing for something like that. Uh, Bukele, uh, which is his name, is one of the most popular presidents in the Americas, but he's been accused of eroding democracy. Interesting. Uh, Opinion polls showed Salvadorans are skeptical about using Bitcoin, fearing its volatility and unsure of how it will work. You can't use, I mean, Bitcoin is not a good currency. Like, I, I don't know how you could argue that Bitcoin is a good currency. It's so volatile in its value that you don't know you know, you might be able to buy a pizza one day and a Ferrari the next. Why would you take that risk of buying a pizza and using it as legal tender? Um, looks like there was a pretty big protest. Wow. thousand people held a protest in San Salvador, burning a tire and setting off fireworks in front of the Supreme Court. Why, why would people be so upset about that? Uh, the poorest may struggle to access the technology needed to make Bitcoin work in El Salvador, where nearly half the population has no internet access and many more only have spotty connectivity. I mean, yeah, I'd be protesting that too. Why are we paying attention to this? We've got other problems we need to focus on. Um, interesting. Well, there you have it. El Salvador uh, moving towards adopting Bitcoin. Uh, pretty cool. So there you have it uh, for today's, uh, whoops, press the wrong button. There you have it for today's Commercial Real Estate Investor podcast episode. Don't forget to jump in live Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time and ask your questions. Let's have a conversation. Until then, y'all have a good night.